Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The gist is sponsored by Stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer and save up to 80% compared to a postage meter. Sign up for a no-risk trial and a $110 bonus offer when you visit Stamps.com and use the promo code THEGIST. And buy Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website, portfolio, and online store. Try the new Squarespace 7 and get 10% off when you visit squarespace.com and enter offer code GIST. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Monday, March 2nd, 2015. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Lots of issues demanding our attention domestically. Five more days of TSA funding. So live it up, enthusiasts of the female-assisted pat-down. Internationally, John Kerry trying to work out a deal with Iran. He used the plural of forum on this week. He said fora. He used it correctly. In over 75 different fora. Fora. So kudos to you, John Kerry. Wouldn't that guy have been a fun president saying things like fora left and right? Anyway, we got ISIS, we got Ukraine, we have a Putin critic gunned down in Russia. There is videotape of the killing, but at the last moment, a snowplow pulls into frame and obscures the identity of the gunman. In U.S., snowplow clears the murderous snow. In Soviet Russia, snowplow clears the murderer. But that's not... The inter It's not Soviet Russia, yes, I know. But that's not the international news I wanted to mention. It's broke last week, but I needed to tell you about it. Ashton Carter, the new Secretary of Defense, he assembled a team of military, intelligence, and diplomatic officials, and he called them. This is like his first big meeting. This is the first time he got the brain trust together. He's on foreign soil, and he says, this is Team America. Team America. It would be confidence-inspiring. If in 2004, the guys behind South Park didn't come out with a movie called Team America World Police, where a shoot first, ask question second team of marionettes have this theme song. So I guess we've just earned our language warning early because today on the show, we will also play a round of Is That Bullshit? I knew we were going to play Is That Bullshit. I knew we were going to get the language warning. So I just went for America. Fuck yeah. I earned it. And in the spiel, I look at the Israeli prime minister's speech before Congress and I, well, what's the opposite of despair? I pair? I spare. Yes, I spare, I guess. But first, the upcoming Supreme Court case that could decide the future of the Affordable Care Act is riding on a few aggrieved parties who might not have standing. 
This Wednesday, the Supreme Court hears oral arguments in the case of King v. Burwell, a challenge to the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act, you know, Obamacare. At issue are a couple of words said a couple of times, words like states, state exchanges. Will the courts say words is words or will they say, well, you know, it was a long law. They got a couple words long. That's the legal doctrine of it happens. Now, if you want a full background on all the issues involved here, you should listen to Dahlia Lithwick's Slate podcast, Amicus, where she interviews a defender of the law and the law professor who really got the ball rolling on this particular lawsuit. But right here, right now, I want to talk about the issue of legal standing with Dahlia Lithwick. Hello, Dahlia. Hi there, Mike. Standing comes up in this case. I know what it is. It means to bring a case, you have to be a person affected by the case. Is that about right? Yeah, I mean, it's very, very clear. The rules say you have to have suffered, quote, an injury in fact. So you can't just be grumpy about something. Uh, You have to, in fact, have suffered a real and tangible harm or you don't get to even walk into the court. I support that. I support that someone that it can't just be a hypothetical person who was wronged. But in this case, it seems that the plaintiffs, I don't know if they're hypothetical, but there is a question as to how wronged they have been or are to this day. Right. This is such an interesting thing, Mike, partly because it's not happening in the briefs in the case. This is all kind of extracurricular debate that has arisen in the last couple of weeks, particularly. uh, I will say that the lower courts that looked at this case, when they looked at it, they said, you know what, there is standing, even when they batted away the the actual claims. But in recent weeks, there's been an enormous amount of digging by really good reporters at Wall Street Journal, at Mother Jones, and they have really, really unearthed what looks to be a standing problem, which is that at least three and maybe four of the named Virginia plaintiffs in this case may not have standing to sue. Right. And so some of them had temporary addresses. Some of them to this day, there is a question of maybe at one point you were negatively affected, but now you're not. And some of them seem to have claimed to be negatively affected. But if you crunch some numbers, they weren't. I think that's right. At least two are former veterans, and they could get benefits through the VA. It looks like one is sufficiently uh, financially challenged that they would be eligible for a hardship exemption under the law. So it looks very much as, again, I think there's a question about whether it's all four or maybe three of the four, but when the named plaintiffs have not, in fact, suffered the injury that they claim to have suffered, then the court has a problem because the court technically does not have jurisdiction to hear a case where nobody's been harmed. Right. So this is kind of delicious, especially if you're a defender of the law or at least an opponent of chaos, which uh, a certain kind of ruling would plunge some of these state exchanges into chaos. Um, The Competitive Enterprise Institute, a uh, pretty well-funded right-wing think tank, goes around, shops for plaintiffs. Look, that alone is not nefarious. The NAACP certainly did that with, say, Brown v. Board of Education. However, aside from having something to relish and to charge the other side with hypocrisy. Practically, can you bring up the fact before it gets to the Supreme Court, we don't think these people have a case? Would that have to be decided before the court even takes it? Can you actually argue that as part of the arguments in front of the court? 
Well, again, it's interesting because the Obama administration didn't uh, bring up these new facts, and in its reply brief, the plaintiffs in the case didn't mention any of it. They continue to contend when they're asked in interviews that, oh, 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 the standing question is resolved. It's either resolved because, you know, time froze at the moment when we filed and other courts have found standing, so the thing goes away. Um, And the court hasn't asked for supplemental briefing, which they could have done once the court knew, huh, there may be a standing problem. This is a slightly interesting doctrine, Mike, because the court has an independent obligation to find standing. In other words, whether or not it's fully briefed or whether or not folks bring it up, the court itself, if it feels a little hinky that this should not be hearing this case, that it doesn't have jurisdiction over this case, the court has an obligation to deal with that. And so one of the things that you know you see in a lot of the blogs is that if, and I should also add just as a, a point of history, the kind of most crazy pro-standing, deranged standing guy is Chief Justice John Roberts, who has thought about this and written about this so extensively and really feels that standing is a neutral way to make sure that the courts are only hearing what they should be hearing. And so there's an interesting coda to this, which is if anybody should care that there might not be standing and should feel a sort of independent obligation to ferret it out, it may just be the Chief Justice. Right. So as Adam Liptak wrote in the New York Times, the court's leading student and proponent of the standing doctrine is John Roberts. It is a neutral legal principle, untainted by ideology. He loves standing. He really wants the people before him to have standing. So what's he going to do about this? Well, you know, I think in the same piece, Adam Liptak suggested that the court has been all over the map with standing. In other words, there have been some cases, for instance, an affirmative um, action challenge out of Texas, where really there was serious, serious question about whether the plaintiff had standing, and the court was like, eh, we'll hear it anyway. Uh, Then there's other cases where there's much less uh, factual basis for for claiming that there's um, uh, uh, standing and the court, uh, you know, uh, declines to hear it. So I think that the truth is that even though it's another one of those lovely neutral principles that you can be absolutely opportunistic about. And so I would say if the Chief Justice is looking for an easy way to make this case go away on principles that have nothing to do with how he feels about Obamacare, standing is a good way of saying, you know what, come back another day with better plans. Okay, so we have one plaintiff who gives her address as the American Inn a short distance from I-95 in Petersburg, Virginia. We have two other plaintiffs who were veterans, but they would have qualified for uh, VA health care. So why are they affected by the law? That's true. But couldn't they just have found better plaintiffs? I mean, even if these four plaintiffs or three of the four, maybe you could argue they don't have standing. Should that mean... Yes, I understand the principle, but isn't that sort of a technicality? Are we saying that there's no one in the entire state of Virginia who was affected by the law and maybe the Competitive Enterprise Institute just chose poorly? I think that's certainly possible. Uh, I think it's possible. It's also worth saying, and I, I did interview Jonathan Adler about this for Amicus, and um, one part of the interview that didn't make the final cut, I asked him about the standing problem, and he felt very, very certain that even if three of the four had serious and substantial standing problems, he was very certain that one of the four, and that's all you need, uh, was sufficient uh, to bring the case forward. But I do think that uh, this signals that it was awfully 
hard for them to find anyone in the first place. I mean, don't forget, in some sense, this is a benefit that is coming to these folks. So to find somebody who feels real hardship because they're getting cheaper health care was not an easy lift. And I think that they probably could have found better plaintiffs. The fact that they didn't suggests that it may have been very, very hard to find better plaintiffs. Dahlia Lithwick is the host of the Slate podcast Amicus, best Supreme Court podcast ever. Thank you, Dahlia. Thank you so much, Mike. The gist is sponsored today by Stamps.com, and you have heard me say it before, going to the post office takes up valuable time, especially when you run a summer camp for teenagers. Not that I've ever run a summer camp for teenagers, but you know who has? A gist listener named Matt Pines, who heard about Stamps.com on the show. Matt runs something called Maine Teen Camp in Porter, Maine. We're a general interest summer camp, you know, kind of what you would think of as a traditional Maine Summer camp, you know, lots of water sports, lots of land sports and the arts. You can probably tell that Matt Pines is not a native of Porter, Maine. He's Australian, but he needs a lot of real U.S. postage because, as it turns out, you send a lot of mail when you run a summer camp. A lot of postcards, actually, like and, and especially newsletters and billing statements and reminders, you know, as we're getting close to the start of the summer, you know, you got to send out those reminders like, yo, we need that medical form on file. And when you run a small business in the woods, it can be hard to get to the post office. Our local town, Porter, it's not a major metropolitan Port- area. Porter, Maine isn't. Safe to say. <laughs> <You're safe. laughs> and so, you know, the post office closes at lunchtime. And so if you don't time it right, you can go down there and find that you've driven into town for no good reason. Matt uses Stamps.com to avoid these trips to the post office and to print official U.S. postage right from his desk using his computer and printer. So that's just another reason to say, okay, we'll keep it all in-house. We've got the printer. I can always just get online, buy some more postage, print them up. Boom, done, you know, move on to the next task. So right now you get a special offer, no risk trial, and a $110 bonus offer, including a digital scale and up to $55 free postage. Don't wait, go to stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in the gist. That's stamps.com, enter the gist. To be a gourmand means to be discerning, to have a discerning palate. And that's a good thing. We prize connoisseurship. There are many magazines and you can take courses devoted to cultivating your connoisseurship. And yet when it comes to claims, to actual claims of scientific merit, we are undiscerning. We so often imbibe the equivalent of Miracle Whip on white bread. Or the Dr. Oz viewers among us, we imbibe the equivalent of glue on cardboard. So we're here now to increase your scientific discernment. We're here with Maria Konnikova. She plays everybody's favorite game, Is That Bullshit? Hello, Maria. Hi, Mike. So sometimes when we say, you know, uh, do you have a bullshit detector? We're saying, you know, did you get the whiff of something that wasn't quite right? I mean, a bullshit detector would literally be about whiffing. So let's talk about things that smell, okay? Mm-hmm. And things that smell good. And the claims that good-smelling things can help heal you, I think this is called aromatherapy? It is indeed. I don't really know exactly what the definition of aromatherapy is. Mm -hmm. Is it something like good smells good for you? Not precisely. Uh Aromatherapy is actually very specific to essential oils that are derived from different plants, herbs. So things like lavender, for instance. A lavender oil would be aromatherapy. Things like orange zest is not aromatherapy. Ah. 
even though I believe that, you know, if you go to a spa these days, they've co-opted the term aromatherapy. And so they think that everything that has a pleasant smell is aromatherapy. But if you talk to people who practice aromatherapy, they'll say, no, it's actually very specific. They'll literally turn up their noses. They will literally turn up their noses. And it's actually a really, really old practice that goes back to ancient Egypt and India are the earliest known instances of people who thought that smells could cure all sorts of things that you could, you know, get bad spirits out of your body by good smells. It got a little bit more sophisticated from there, but, mm-hmm. <laughs> but that bit. was that was one of the earliest incarnations. But we didn't actually have the word aromatherapy till the 20th century. I want to back up a second and ask you about essential oils. Mm-hmm. What makes them essential? What, uh, what's a definition <laughs> of essential oils? That's a good question. An essential oil is an oil that's derived directly from that plant. The essence so, of. The essence thing. of. Yes. Exactly. Exactly. All right. So... How does aromatherapy work, if it works, and that's what we're leading up to? Mm -hmm. There must be something more complex than, here, smell this. So the term was actually born from an experience where this guy, René-Maurice Gatfosé, he's French in case his name doesn't give it away, (laughs) Um, he was a chemist and he worked with smells. He, He made perfumes. And in 1910, he had a horrible accident in his lab. The stuff exploded all Mm -hmm. over his skin. Mm -hmm. He runs outside, rolls on the grass, but then he's afraid that it's going to get infected. But he's been studying the different characteristics of perfumes for a long time, and he has a hunch that certain of the oils that he uses might actually be helpful. So then he takes lavender oil and he puts it over all of his sores to make sure that they don't develop into gangrene and that he doesn't die. Uh-huh. And it works. It works. It works. Do you Is there know, a reason why that worked? People think that they have certain antiseptic properties okay. against certain bacteria. So Back then, when we didn't have antibiotics, when we didn't have a lotion that you could put on, that was actually a pretty smart idea. So he coined this term aromatherapy. He started studying this extensively. How can we use these essential oils you know, for medicinal purposes? Right, but it doesn't seem like the thing that cured him had anything to do with smelling the oils. No, it did That's not. That's weird. It did <laughs> like, not. So from this right. experience of coating exactly. myself in the oils, I'm going to tell you to smell so, them. So that you yeah. just got the kind of the essential disconnect. So he, this was his experience, but then he's a perfume maker. Yeah. So he starts experimenting with the smells and in 1936 publishes this book, Aromatherapy, which founded this whole field and this notion that smells can cure. And until probably the 70s, there really wasn't much more work on it. People either didn't take it seriously or just didn't study it seriously. Mm -hmm. We've talked before about the importance of well-designed studies where you have double blinds, where you kind of don't have preconceived notions of what's going to happen. And the types of people who ended up studying aromatherapy were not the types of people who wanted to do these controlled studies in the lab. That has since changed. So we now have a few reviews. Um, I was able to pull up, I think, a handful of reviews of studies from the last 30 years or Mm -hmm. so, 30, 40 years. It's really interesting. They all try to find studies that meet strict criteria of at least semi-sound scientific methodology. You have to be a little bit looser because there really isn't anything with perfectly sound. And the latest review, which was out last year, found a potential pool of 210 studies. Okay. And out of those, only 10 met the criteria. 
So you that, mean, wait, met the criteria for being legit for studies? For being legit studies. Okay. And so ne- that should tell you a little bit. Regardless of even if they said that aromatherapy works or didn't. Exactly. So what is so, the claim of aromatherapy, by the way? It's, is it that it can cure specific diseases or that it will generally take away the common cold? How, how far do the both. adherents take it? Both. So they have claims for all sorts of things. The most basic claim, um, which we'll talk about more because it's the only one that's been at least partially substantiated, Ooh, good. is anxiety okay. and stress. Okay. Um, but they also think that it can help dementia, that it can help all, so, so, all sorts of diseases. In some cancers, people think that aromatherapy might actually help lead to to cures. And a lot of people think that a lot of these oils have properties that will help prevent different sorts of bad infections from happening. Migraines, which I actually totally don't understand as a migraine sufferer mm-hmm. myself, that are my migraines are triggered by smells. So I don't actually understand that. But apparently some people think that it can help for migraines. So basically, you name it, they got it. And actually the common cold, some people think that things like aromatherapy massage that's a crucial word, actually. A lot of people do it with massage. So you go yeah. to a, mas- you know, you get the, the oil massaged into your body, that it can help stimulate your immune system. Yeah. Well, I think aromatherapy radiation can help with cancer. <laughs> I mean, once you add that extra thing. Okay. So let's, so you say there is one stress, anxiety, aromatherapy has yeah. been proved as far as these studies yeah, go. Yeah. So there are some okay. interesting studies that show that when you do aromatherapy, either on its own or in massage form, people experience immediate releases of anxiety. What I mean by that is as soon as you're done and during the procedure, you're less anxious. Unfortunately, the result is really, really fleeting. So the next day, you're just as anxious. And sometimes even a few hours later, you're just as anxious as you were. But in the moment, it actually does somehow help. And they've done this. um, I'm not so interested in the massage part. Like, of course, massage will help. I just want to know that a good smell really, it's not so... Hard to believe mm-hmm. stress is a state of mind yep. and anxiety. And if, especially yeah. if people believe in it and they mm-hmm. get any sort of pleasant stimuli, yeah. it could relieve stress. Yeah. So, the, so that without the massage, let's yes. just go. And it's actually, it's hard to find them without the massage because a lot of the studies do show, do yeah. use a massage. Yeah. Like uh, aromatherapy and a steak can cure hunger. There's a lot of <laughs> things well, with aromatherapy that could work. Aromatherapy there's... and water can cure being on fire. <laughs> There's a recent study on dementia patients Uh that put oils on their faces and on their temples, which is no massage, just kind of the aromatherapy. And they found that it actually helped relieve, while the smell was active, the symptoms of anxiety that are often associated with dementia. Didn't help cure dementia, didn't make them more lucid, but it made them calmer and less stressed, which is actually a good thing. A lot of patients get disoriented in hospitals. If you're an older patient, you can sometimes experience symptoms that are like dementia, even though you're not actually in the late stages of dementia because you're so disoriented. And so if we have anything that can calm you down at that point, that's great. Well, you know what? That alone, aromatherapy has impressed me. I didn't even expect it to do that. But you're saying beyond that? Beyond that, we have no evidence for for it doing anything. If we go back to the original French case, once again, that was an antiseptic quality that Mm. had nothing to do with the smell. So we've talked a lot about aromatherapy. We've talked a lot about stress-busting 
Give us the final word. Aromatherapy. Is it bullshit? It is bullshit for most of the things that they claim. However, for the anxiety and stress relief in the immediate term, it's not. And I think that that in and of itself is actually a really important use of it. Maria Konnikova, science expert, writer for The New Yorker, comes into our show to play Is That Bullshit? and winds up smelling like a rose, which, as we've proven, can cure pleurisy. (laughs) Thank you, Maria. Thank you, Mike. In Soviet Russia, website design you. I don't know if that's true. In fact, I don't think there were websites in Soviet Russia. I just enjoy the simple chiasmus, which is, well, if I had a website about chiasmus, you'd press a button and it would take any phrase and invert it. So simple, classic chiasmus, sometimes pronounced chiasmus. Uh, Don't ask what your country could do for you. Flipperoo, ask what you could do for your country. So many of our phrases could be chiasmist. That's a website I'm thinking of designing, but how should I design it? I know, Squarespace. Squarespace is simple, powerful, and beautiful. They're supported via live chat and email. For $8 a month, you get a free domain if you buy Squarespace for the year. You also get a free online store. Every website comes with a free online store. And cover pages, which is a feature that allows you to set up a really good-looking one-page online presence in just minutes. So start with a no-credit-card-required free trial. You can build your website today. When you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use the offer code GIST to get 10% off your first purchase and to show support for our show. Squarespace. Build it beautiful. And now the spiel, Bibi's Boo Boo. Let's talk about hallowed halls, sacred spaces. You got Lords, the Vatican, the Wailing Wall, closer to home, maybe the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. Or as Illinois Congresswoman Jan Schakowsky posited on yesterday's Meet the Press. The floor of the House of Representatives is the most prestigious venue in the world. Really? prestigious venue. I thought maybe La Scala, St. Peter's Square, Carnegie Hall. How do you get to Carnegie Hall? The old quip goes, practice. How do you get to the floor of Congress? Light graft. Nepotism helps in terms of name recognition, getting good with the party bosses, have an old guy die in office. Actually, that's kind of what the Pope does too to get to St. Peter's. But anyway, there's another answer to how to get to the floor of Congress. Have John Boehner ask you to come. This is the case with Israeli Prime Minister Bibi Netanyahu. Tomorrow, he will speak before Congress. He didn't go through the White House, which is highly unusual, a breach of protocol. It's polarizing to American Jews. Jewish Americans mostly vote Democrat, though not all. But if you look at Congress, the Pew Research Center counts 27 Jewish congressmen or women. 26 of them are Democrats. Of the nine senators who are Jewish, all are Democrats, except Bernie Sanders, an independent who caucuses with the Democrats. Netanyahu, it is said, wants to address Congress so he can fully inform lawmakers of the folly of negotiating with Iran. What are the contents of the negotiation? Doesn't matter. What are the assurances that an agreement with Iran might bring? Doesn't matter. That is Netanyahu's message. The future of Israel is at stake. Also at stake, less theoretically, is Bibi's future as prime minister of Israel. His Likud party looks weaker than it has in recent years. Center-left rival, the Zionist Union, has a slight edge over Likud in two recent polls. However, should be noted, the nature of parliamentary politics in Israel is such that Likud could still wind up picking the prime minister due to its coalition with other parties. I don't have the numbers, but it's definitely less than certain that Bibi Netanyahu will be leading Israel in a couple of months. But we should note that this speech is likely to be, if not the high watermark of Bibi's campaign, 
probably the most high-minded mark. Here is a commercial for Likud posted on Netanyahu's website. We see a couple of ne'er-do-wells, one's very beardy, the other in a ski mask, driving around in a truck while waving an ISIS flag. Scary, scary desert truck, scary driving, scary flag waving. Plus this rap song. Then the truck pulls up next to a passenger car and asks, Hey bro, how do you get to Jerusalem? And the driver of the car says in Hebrew, take a left. Get it? No, it's okay if you don't get it, because the slogan comes on the screen, the left will surrender to terror. Subtle. By the way, the Jordanian rap duo behind that song called Gorba, they're suing Netanyahu and Likud. And by the way, I'll throw this out there. I doubt that ISIS, who kills street magicians, beheads smokers, is that into hip-hop? But why quibble? What I do know is the theme, the left will surrender to terror, echoes a frequent implication in U.S. politics as well. And sometimes it's also more than an implication in the U.S. when our elections are close. But please, let's not fret over U.S.-Israel relations or the U.S. turning its back on Israel or even Netanyahu taking Israel to a dangerous and heretofore unprecedented place in aligning with only one U.S. party. The speech is not that dire. Are U.S.-Israel relations at the top, right? Relations between Obama and Netanyahu. Are they worse than they've been for 20, 30 years? It does look that way. Are U.S. and Israel relations overall weak? No, they are not weak. They are strong. They're as strong as any two democracies in the world. Belgium and Luxembourg do not have as strong relations as the U.S. and Israel do. Norway and Finland have much deeper tensions than the U.S. and Israel do. There are no two countries the world over where one just isn't a puppet of the other that have as strong relations. Australia bans apples from New Zealand, for God's sake. So we'll be fine. We, the U.S., we and Israel. This is not so much a sea change in relations as it is a wrinkle. And how could it not have happened? Netanyahu is quite conservative, and the Obama White House is internationally much more liberal. Plus, both countries are at war with various factions in Israel's neighborhood, and Israel has this intractable Palestinian problem for which there are no good solutions. So sure, there will be some wrinkles. There have to be some wrinkles. But wrinkles is all they are. And even though the content of this speech will include themes of existential import, the real motivation is electoral impact. The Gist is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply, P-A-N-O-P-L-Y. You ain't got no alibi. Andrea Salenzi is the producer of The Gist, but I can't help it if she's in Turkey. I shan't be mentioning her in the remainder of the credits this week, but now you know why. I also can't help if just intern Claire Tennisketter does suffer from coolrophobia. We have a clown segment to produce, and Claire's got to produce it. I can't help if managing producer Joel Meyer was shot by a small caliber air rifle. We still have the responsibility to cover BB. I can't help if our executive producer Andy Bowers wants to bring attention to the plight of factory farms through protest chants. Sorry, subjugate simply does not rhyme with ungulate. I can't help any of that. But what I can help is you to dial the number for They Might Be Giants. It's 844-387-6962. That is the number of dial a song. They Might Be Giants post a new song on Tuesday. Now, I can't help that it's not Tuesday. Actually, I can. Because right here, right now, we have They Might Be Giants' newest song, as we do every Monday on The Gist. So here is They Might Be Giants singing I Can Help 
the next in line. I can help the next in line. Have you been with us before? I can help 